This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by three historians to talk about Growing Up America, Youth and Politics Since 1945. I'm joined by Susan Eckelman Bergel, Sarah Fieldston, and Paul Renfro, who wrote this really fascinating edited volume about the United States growing up in the post-war period and our understandings of youth and adults during that period as well. But I'm going to let them tell us all about that today as we talk about Growing Up America, which was published in 2019 by the University of Georgia Press. Right now, I'd like to welcome Susan, Sarah, and Paul to the New Books Network and ask them each to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this really interesting project. I think I'm starting with Sarah. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Sarah Fieldston. Um, I teach at Seton Hall University um, in South Orange, New Jersey. Um, I am the author of Raising the World, Child Welfare in the American Century, uh, which came out in 2015 and um, is a book that explores American efforts to help children overseas um, and at the same time um, spread the American way of life around the world um, during the Cold War era. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, um, thank you for the opportunity to let us speak about a book and share um, our insights into this topic. My name is Susan Nickelman Burgel. I'm an associate professor of history and the director of Africana Studies uh, at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. And I'm completing a book-length manuscript provisionally titled "Freedom Satellites: Children and Teenagers in the United States and Abroad During the Civil Rights Era." And I'm Paul Renfro. I am an assistant professor of history at Florida State University and the author of Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State, which was published last year in 2020 by Oxford University Press. And I came to this project, actually, um, Susan and I kind of were first discussing the idea of an edited collection after we had served on a panel together at the Southern Historical Association Conference in Atlanta in 2014, I believe. And shortly thereafter, um, Sarah came on board. You know, she immediately expressed interest in the project and we all kind of recognized that there was a gap in the literature on, on childhood and the recent um, political history of the U.S. So this is more or less what kind of... Um, propelled us to this project. And um, go ahead. 
so I, I was going to say uh, the history of childhood um, is is really kind of a, a burgeoning field. I'd say over the past fifteen to twenty years, um, there's been just this outpouring um, of scholarship on the history of childhood. Um, but I mean, I think one of the things that the three of us noticed was that. Um, a lot of that work um, was not really exploring politics. It was not really political. Um, and I mean, on the one hand, that makes sense, right? Because when you think of children and when you think of childhood, right? Um, I mean, childhood is, is normally thought of as, as apolitical, right? Um, children can't vote, right? Um, they, they can't participate in formal politics. Um, you know, that there's this notion of childhood innocence. Um, but in many ways, precisely because childhood is cast as apolitical, um, images of children are regularly marshaled by uh, people of all political stripes from across the political spectrum. Um, and even though children cannot participate in politics in a formal way, um, children themselves um, were political actors um, in all sorts of other ways. Um, and so I think you know, all of us, you know, kind of in, in discussing what we saw as kind of a gap in the literature, um, we thought it would be really fascinating to, to bring together new scholarship that explores um, the kind of nexus of children in politics, um, and then in many ways broadens our definition um, of, you know, what politics can, can look like. And this is what I found really interesting also in terms of the book itself, um, in, in the idea of the, the innocence of childhood and the, the apolitical nature, as you all talk about it in the introduction, um, and the fact that children themselves are used in politics, um, are regularly referenced in politics, um, but that, again, they are non-voters, um, and so other people need to represent them. Um, and you also sort of sectionalize the book itself into different discussions of childhood um, and children. But I just wanted to ask you also, because you're you're threading together two, two strands, the United States as a country no longer being a child, um, and also the idea of how children are thought of and the notion of childhood. Can you talk about those different components as the framework and also the substance of the, the book? I can, I can start. Um, I think it was important for us to integrate children's voices um, as they oftentimes uh, redefine politics. Children as actors in their own right um, deliver uh, different ways of, uh, for us to think about politics, oftentimes against uh, progressive formulations and against adult prescriptions of competency. So it was important for us to think um, through American American politics, through the lens of children's voices themselves, um, and I, I think you know one of the things that that we're trying to to do here um, is to kind of weave together children as symbols, but also children as like you know really flesh and blood people, right? Who are who are, who are doing different things. Um, and, um, you know, I think a, a lot of works um, either kind of look at children um, merely as, as symbols. Um, and I mean, that work is very fascinating, right? I mean, the, the looking at children as symbols, um, is, it's important work. Um, but then, and then there's other work that kind of explores the lived realities of children. And, and part of what we wanted to do was kind of weave those two stories together, right? To kind of explore, um, you know, how children are, are, are being 
um, kind of marshaled as, as symbols in political life, um, but then also, you know, what the experiences were like um, for, for all different kinds of children who were growing up during this era. Um, and to kind of go back to your question, I mean, this is really the story um, of kind of the, the baby boomers coming of age. Um, you know, we, we, we start off right after World War II, um, and the volume goes through the late 20th century. So we actually have the, the, the baby boomers and their experiences um, during the, the height of the early Cold War, during the uh, 1960s and all of the rights revolutions, um, during the kind of more conservative turn toward the end um, of the 20th century. And so they're actually, um, you know, our, our protagonists are kind of, you know, they're children. And then, um, you know, by the latter chapters, they're actually the parents, right? And there's this new generation of children. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, it's a story about children growing up. It's also a story, of course, about um, the United States growing up, um, you know, with kind of in, in quotes, um, but the kind of the evolution of American political life during that time period. Yeah. And in many ways, I think we wanted to explore the idea of growing up and maturity and innocence in this kind of political framework. And I think kind of examining the idea of neoliberalism as um, not necessarily this kind of end point, but a point where we concluded the volume more or less and how that kind of political formation is so premised on the individual and the family and so it's, I think, interesting to kind of conceive of um, politics in these kind of personal terms, as many of the groups and kind of movements that we're talking about did, uh, but also the ways in which those ideas or that kind of um, conception was maybe bastardized or manipulated and used in order to further policy goals that serve to kind of foreclose solidarity or foreclose, you know, collective action, these sorts of things. So, um, you know, and all of this is kind of uh, very, I don't know, it's it's all kind of conceptual and, you know, it's, it's not necessarily fully formed and it's really difficult to kind of make these sweeping claims about, uh, you know, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people in this, across this broad expanse and, and many, many years, but it's, uh, it's a project that we were really interested to kind of take on and, and you know, encourage other people to think about. And in some ways, it's also very concrete because the children's voices oftentimes very much contest and object to the very layers that adults have imposed. And that becomes evident uh, during the Vietnam War. It becomes very evident in Sarah's chapter, I think. And you can uh, share a little bit more about that where uh adults have ideas about the roles that young people play and they contest that. And um, uh, that that was very valuable. And in the process, I think we've discovered that if we place ch children at the center of the stories, then the story doesn't hold quite as neatly together anymore either. It tells us something very different about how we narrate, or how the United States itself as a nation narrates progress, uh, change. Uh, young people rem are really at the center of dislodging that narrative, uh, ideas, uh, uh, the chapter, uh, a chapter I uh, helped edit in the section that I focused on 
Andrea Wan's piece really shows sort of how young people, high schoolers in particular, are at the center of challenging the model minority, something that's been so exploited and operationalized um, and to the disservice, not only the community that was at the center of that narrative, but also in the context of communities of color across the board. And I wanted to ask you, as we sort of dive into this discussion of, as you say, placing children at the center of the narrative and how the narratives then get dislodged a bit, or perhaps they don't hold together, you break up the volume into three sections, um, and that they they are historical um, contexts. And so there's the Cold War, and the sort of rights revolution, um, and and then the sort of the, the neoliberal, um, as well as uh, voices that hadn't been heard of from as much in the final section. Um, and I just wanted to ask about how you structured this book. Obviously, you are historians, and so it's following historical trajectory, but also, you know, how you parsed out these pieces in each particular section um, and how you came to thinking about like children during the Cold War and how that was a unique experience and how they were used and how they adjusted to that time. Yeah, I mean, so I guess each of us kind of came to this project with our, our own kind of um, area of expertise, um, which is kind of what led us to this um, to the way that we divided up the manuscript. Um, you know, my, with my first book, I had done a lot of work thinking about um, children during the early Cold War era. Um, you know, Susan focusing on um, the kind of mid-century rights revolutions um, of the, the 1960s, um, and then Paul thinking about um, the kind of conservative turn later in the 20th century. Um, and so each kind of bringing our own um, our own interests, but also, um, I think, kind of three topics that um, are also kind of hot topics that, that, that a lot of, you know, there was, we all felt there was kind of a lot of, like, really interesting scholarship taking place um, around um, these three eras slash themes. Um, and it also happened to work out nicely that, you know, they, they do kind of, you know, it is also chronological progress, right? So as, as historians, thinking about change over time is always very important. So um, so that's kind of where the the conceptual idea for the book came from. I remember we were on a call with each other when, when we kind of realized that like this was going to work out really nicely, actually. Um, and then we kind of um, you know reached out to scholars um, who we knew were kind of working on topics related to these to these um, to these three three themes. Yeah, it was a, actually a really organic process. We had uh, several calls um, for chapters and the initial call. Uh, many of these contributors um, had submitted their work and we were engaged. And as Sarah pointed out, it kind of uh, uh, built on our own expertise and that's determined um, the organization of the book. And then we did um, want to highlight different areas as well. So we did have a, a second call because we wanted to make sure that uh, areas that were not yet represented uh, would be. Yeah. And, you know, just speaking about my section, there had been, I guess, quite a lot of conversation in the historical profession, you know, since the early 2000s about the so-called rise of the right. And so, uh, historians have begun, I think, to kind of push against that interpretation. And that's something that I really wanted to explore in that section, you know, 
Um, this is, as we've discussed, a, a story of change, but in many ways, it's also one of continuity, or at least one of um, kind of symmetry on both sides of, of the political spectrum, if you want to conceive of it in that way. And I don't think that people have really considered how children fit into that formation or, I mean, people are beginning to, um, but, you know, as more folks are talking about reproductive politics, um, you know, I'm thinking of Laura Briggs's work, for instance, um, you know, I think that that helps to kind of uh, maybe reconfigure the ways in which people are conceiving of the political moment in which I think we still uh, are or living um, really from the seventies on. So, you know, age of fracture, neoliberalism, what have you, um, I think children and the ways in which children's images are operationalized can tell us a lot about that political moment. And uh, what surprised me about the contributions in the section on mid-century revolutions was the opportunity to really rethink uh, what we know about the social movements, whether it pertains to the periodization of the Vietnam War or the movement for disability rights and who's really actually at the center of those conversations and how those conversations evolved uh, and also the limits of those conversations. I think uh, the contributions in the section I was mainly responsible for was really striking. Um but also to think about politics differently. I think the section on social uh, revolutions, we see, uh, we tend to gravitate toward the marches. Um, and what that section um, provided was an, an opportunity to think about politics and the way we define it uh, in general. And uh, by thinking about correspondence, so the direct uh, relationship between uh, public officials and young people and how uh, coming of age uh Material manifest in that uh, form. Um, science fairs, thinking about uh, um, young women in, in science, that's a really uh, critical way to think about politics as well. Um, and uh, yeah, thinking about youth organizations and how uh, young people uh, helped redefine notions of citizenship and, and political fitness, um, I think was really rewarding for us as, as a, as a, editorial collective. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And I, I guess kind of shifting uh, backwards in time now to think um, about the, the section on children under the early Cold War. Um, I mean, well, I think something that's very striking is that on both sides of the Iron Curtain, we see political leaders marshalling images of children to prove that their way of life is better, right? I mean, children, I, I think it's, you know, it's no coincidence that children figure very prominently in Cold War propaganda and not just within the United States. Um, what had been less explored and something that we wanted to explore in this section um, were the experiences of children themselves, right, who are living through this era, who, um, you know, are, of course, um, you know, being told that um, they need to, um, you know, help uh, spread democracy around the world and that um, the American way of life is better. Um, and so what were their actual experiences like? Um, 
and we focused um, on children who were participating um, in these international friendship programs. So they were writing to pen pals across the globe and kind of what that experience was like for them. Some of them even traveled overseas um, in the late 40s to help um, rebuild um, bombed out schools in Germany, right? That's kind of a, a way of like, you know, building this kind of post-war alliance with a former enemy. Um, and I mean, they had some very experiences that they you know, wrote home about um, hanging out with like, former Hitler youth, how much fun they were having with them. I mean, it's a very, very kind of crazy stories. Um, and, you know, children who are participating, um, as Susan mentioned, in, in science fairs, um, in Boy Scout troops um, who are you know, collecting clothing um, and helping to kind of um, helping their peers um, in other parts of the so-called free world, um, build, up, build up their Boy Scout troops. Um, and then we even had a chapter looking at, um, at home education courses um, that were being taught in high schools and the kinds of messages um, that were being given to young people about how they could adjust their own personalities, um, how, could they, how they could kind of transform themselves in order to help bolster American democracy. Um, and this notion of kind of personal transformation as a route to political transformation, to these kind of larger societal changes. This is a theme that we kept on coming back to again and again um, across the eras um, on the part of both liberals and conservatives, right? This notion that um, you know, through changing oneself, and of course children are the most malleable, right? So they're often the targets of these kinds of projects, right? That by personal transformation, these kind of larger societal transformations can occur. Uh, and what we found, you know, looking at um, uh, primary sources produced by children um, was that these messages were sometimes eagerly adopted by young people um, and they were sometimes uh, rejected. And there was sometimes a little bit of both. Right. And sometimes children were, were kind of taking part in these larger political projects, but for different reasons, like not necessarily for, for political reasons, um, but because they could gain something from it. Right. So there's this very kind of interesting story about children helping to kind of bolster um, the Cold War, or the Cold War order, um, but also challenge it. <laughs> and I really I mean, again, I thought that this collection and the way that you all approach it was so fascinating to think about because it is about politics, but it's also about these cultural dimensions that are, you know, often considered soft power. Um, and, and because we're talking about children, we're not talking about necessarily, you know, treaties between countries, um, but all of these different ways that um, young people were integrated into sort of the culture and politics of the day. Um, I did want to ask you before we go much further, um, because this is a contested term, particularly these, particularly these days when we talk about it um, as applied to different racial groups in the United States. Um, and so can you all sort of talk about what you mean by child, children, or youth? as the term is in the title of the book, um, and how come this term itself seems to be elastic in its application? I think that I'll, I'll start, um, and I hope you guys will join me there. Um, 
youth itself has become kind of a, a political term. It's it's um, adults associate all kinds of uh, characteristics with it: uh, rebellion, um, uh, uh, or or sometimes the opposite, uh, uh, laziness, or or sort of a, a kind of complacency, perhaps to use a better word. Um, and what I found really powerful and uh, unique about the chapters that we delivered is actually we also deconstruct the, the concept of youth and childhood and the way it's been deployed in politics. And oftentimes we rely on the youth actors themselves to tell us how what they mean by how they define their own their own life, their own embodied experience. And then what we discover is that those terms actually rarely uh, fit or are or, or too neatly uh, are restricting. And what we see, in fact, what we tend to do in the work and in the volume is to think about the definition of youth as it's conceived by themselves. And many of the chapters also provide something a lot more um, uh uh, critical in the sense that we pay attention to different age groups within youth categories and highlight how that affects uh, perceptions and engagement with politics. Youth demographics tend to be lumped together, and that's also kind of contributed to uh, broader notions about youth, this sort of lumping youth and, and childhood and youth. And, and what this volume does is sort of counter, counter that kind of uh, lumping by showing um, that there's an actually there's a cost to that um, because uh, there are age graded interests and and they are formulated in different ways and we um, undercut the power of non age uh, of majority citizenship too if we tend to lump those together and of course I mean I think there's always this lingering question who who gets a childhood right like who who gets to be considered a child um, and um, you know as we See, um, you know, very sharply nowadays, and have also historically, right? Like a lot of that has to do with race, right? Um, I, I mean, you know, youthful innocence um, is is something that um, you know, in popular culture and in politics, um, is is kind of is, is something that 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 white youth, right, uh, get to embody in a way that uh, youth of color do not. Yeah, and you know. In my chapter, my contribution to this volume, I talk a lot about uh, white childhood innocence and the notion of um, endangered childhood and the ways in which that can be kind of employed in order to marginalize groups that have been historically marginalized. Um, and most visibly, that takes place through the growth of the carceral state and other sorts of kind of punitive um, mechanisms of the state. And, and so I did want to ask you, this is one of the questions I get to ask, um, editors of edited volumes, um, that often elicits, uh, great, um, input. Uh, you all asked colleagues that you knew, or maybe you didn't know to contribute chapters as you sort of came up with this schema for the book. And so my question to each of you, since it sounds like you each also had responsibility for one of the sort of historical contextual sections, is what research most surprised you as these chapters were rolling in? And obviously, this is not asking you to define what your favorite chapter is, because they're all favorites. 
Um, having edited books myself, I, I know they are all my favorite chapters. Um, but the question is really, uh, what, as you were reading a chapter, you're like, wow, I never thought of that. Um, or that's a amazing sort of understanding of what was going on. So I, any of you can start with what was most surprising um, in the research. Um, well, I can start us off. Um, we can kind of go chronologically, I guess, um, through the different chapters of uh, the different sections of the book. Um, so um, reading um, Molly Jessup's chapter on life adjustment education was the first time that I had ever come across the term life adjustment education. I don't know if uh, any listeners have, have heard of it either. Um, but this was um, a curriculum uh, developed and employed in public schools across the country um, during the 1950s. So, I mean, and this was ex extremely popular. Um, and it was basically instruction on kind of how to, how to behave socially. Um, and so there were, there were um, instructions on how to dress. Um, you know, how to, how to relate to peers. Um, there, there were kind of questionnaires um, that students were asked, um, they were asked to kind of give these questionnaires to peers um, and have them rate them on their likability, on their looks, on the way that, that they, um, on the way that, that they dress. And uh, all, I mean, all of these things that, that one now would just think of as kind of superficial characteristics. Um, but this was considered really important. Um, and Molly Jessup found um, all of these um, really interesting uh, reports made by life adjustment education teachers um, that were you know, sent up to kind of the, the higher ups in public education reporting on the successes of this program. Um, and uh, not surprisingly, I mean, a lot of the material was focused on, on young women, right? And, and, and kind of, you know, I don't want to say policing the behavior of them, um, right? But, but but kind of really focusing on um, on young women and kind of you know how they could be reshaped in this way. Um, and I think um, I mean knowing you know what we know about gender roles in the 1950s, that's not particularly surprising. Um, but it's just so interesting to kind of see the ways that these messages um, kind of get out on the ground, right? Kind of the, the, the way that, that young people were really, you know, kind of indoctrinated into these notions um, of gender and notions um, of, you know, how they themselves could, could behave. Uh, so that was one of, for me, that was one of the, the most kind of interesting and eye-opening uh, pieces of research that I encountered. And I can build uh, forward and chronologically that's a very hard question because I, I would say I discovered something really special about each of these chapters, uh, not only the ones uh, that I was uh, responsible for as part of the uh, editing team, but um, I think what resonated with me and I'll maybe two, two of the most uh, unique things that or interesting aspects that I didn't really know much about, um, uh, I I discovered in Annie Wan's uh, chapter, and I brought her up earlier, um, her work on Asian American youth was really revealing because, again, um, the, the power of the model minority myth is so pervasive in American society and continues to be so pervasive. And the fact that these young uh, high schoolers in particular, she identifies the high school as a very important site, um, 
where young Asian Americans uh, eschewed this this external classification as a model minority, the assumption that people of Asian descent had overcome discrimination, achieved economic and educational success. But what's and this is also a very timely topic because what she really reveals is how um, many Asian American youth also uh, uh, were profiled, racially profiled uh, by uh, the police, uh, and how because of the model minority myth, they didn't always have access to the same resources to protect themselves, and so they they joined that force to uh, to to put graphite uh, on many, in many ways, those, those uh, invisible fingerprints of these, uh, these deep challenges. Um, she also talks about tracking um, in high schools and how that puts Asian American youth in a particular category um, and creates divisions within uh, youth communities of color. And what's interesting that is also the the catalyst then for many of these youth to join the third world movements and anti-war movements to restore those divisions that have artificially imposed uh, that were supposed to, do, to divide communities of color. Um, I found her chapter particularly revealing um, because she also really um, uh, shows just the depth of challenges that Asian American youth encountered um, the drug problems, the, the uh, uh, racial profiling, the, the, uh, the criminal uh, criminalization of Asian American youth that uh, is something that we don't often um, hear, hear, hear about historically past present. Um, so that was uh, really a powerful chapter. But again, I, I learned so much in each of these different chapters about how we conceptualize history, how we think about uh, youth uh, then and uh, today. Um, I think just to add maybe one more bit that uh, is quite useful uh, as a historian to think about conceptual uh, and periodic frameworks, Jennifer Helgren's uh, chapter on um, the opening um, of of disabled members, um, but how uh, even as uh, youth organizations attracted and invited uh, youth with disabilities, how those youth were also utilized um, to restore abled categories that and create new categories within the uh, the realm of disabilities. I thought that was really revealing, and it's helpful for us to think about um, how young people um, become opera- operationalized and, and utilized and exploited in in popular discourses, but also how they push back um, on those boundaries and those those kinds of categories. Um, yeah, and if you I, get to play clean up here. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, if I had to select one chapter, um, I, I mean, I, th- again, this isn't my, my favorite chapter or anything like that, but one that maybe surprised me uh, was Amy Subix's chapter in, in the third section uh, because it, I think, shed new light on the issue of uh, gender and, and STEM and, and girlhood and STEM education. And she demonstrates how in the early Cold War period, this was obviously kind of deemed anathema or it was unthinkable that 
girls, young women would want to pursue STEM education or serve as engineers or what have you. And, you know, with the the convulsions of the 60s and 70s and and beyond, uh, that became actually quite accepted and indeed encouraged. And there's an interesting sort of analytical component to this, or I guess, um, new perspective that she provides, I think, which kind of complicates this general understanding of girls in STEM as good. And that is that it can, in many ways, kind of perpetuate inequality or maybe um, open up new forms of of inequality or present new kind of um, ways to gloss inequality. So I think she, in that chapter and through, you know, a variety of sources, is employing some really interesting kind of political theoretical work that, uh, you know, feminist scholars like Nancy Fraser and others have utilized. Um, but she's applying it in, in this way. And I, I found that really refreshing and interesting. And so I also wanted to ask you, because part of what you've been talking about and part of what I saw as I was reading the book was that there are, are understandings of, say, the rights revolution period with regard to politicizing um, lots of different social movements and moving people to the streets um, and having particularly young people, um, but perhaps college, I don't know if that's youth or not these days, um, as, you know, sort of the the, the sharp point of the spear in, in a lot of that. But a lot of what you're finding and a lot of what your authors um, are writing about are to some degree, like you think this is kind of the case, but maybe it's not. Um, and I, I sort of found that to be the case in a lot of these chapters in sort of reconceptualizing what we did think about um, was going on and how young people were involved in it. Can you talk again about some surprises in terms of like conclusions that we all think we know, but in fact are not the case? Oh, something that I thought was really fascinating actually in, in Sarah's chapter was um, how adults try to uh, portray a certain image of the United States and how young people became the vessel through their letters to convey that to foreign youth. Um, Something that I was really struck by, and I think um, sort of by looking at an understudied body of evidence, um, was to show was to see that foreigners didn't always buy that narrative. They didn't always uh, uh, internalize or uh, receive that message uh, and pushed back and and uh, revealed uh, another image about the United States in the process of that discourse and that exchange. And I thought that was really uh, powerful to think uh, that 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 hegemony was. What was in fact not um, as powerful, and the message wasn't as successful at times. I thought that uh, t- to me really resonated and tells us something about using certain kinds of sources to change and, and challenge narratives. I think there's often the assumption that um, that young people um, get out on the streets and march for liberal causes. Um, and that um, conservative causes are using children uh, primarily as symbols. Um, and I think this is something that we discovered um, in putting together these chapters, um, and I'm thinking of Susan's chapter in particular, is that that, was, that is not the case. Um, 
you know, there are children who are, are active in various ways on both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, Susan highlights um, a number of really interesting letters, um, you know, written by conservative youth, um, you know, to American leaders um, coming out um, in favor um, of the American war in Vietnam. Uh, you know, this is something that you don't really hear about, right? Uh, young people who are, who are um, making their opinions um, know that they're supportive um, of U.S. actions in Southeast Asia. Um, um, you know, so I, I, I think, um, you know, kind of breaking down that liberal conservative divide and kind of thinking about like where children fall, um, you know, it's, it's not as kind of neat a picture as I think, um, many of us would, would perhaps believe. Especially at a his, historical moment when scholars and even popular narratives assign that with a moment of youth rebellion against the war, sort of the height of the anti-war, uh, movement, we see that, that's simply not true. And, and maybe to build on that, it's too that it's not just the, the binaries that we've created or that Americans continue to hold on don't always align. It's also this, this uh, sense of uh, allegiance between youth categories uh, that uh, becomes uh, dislodged in the process of this larger narrative that we've uh, outlined in this, in this book. Yeah, and I think there's this conception also, just speaking very broadly, that um, youth politics kind of, well, the politics of children and young people will remain fixed. And in that sense, you know, demographics are destiny. And people said that about, you know, the the youth who were, yes, marching against the Vietnam War uh, in support of African-American civil rights, etc. And in many ways, you know, the world that those folks were organizing for really never came um, to be because many of their uh, kind of exigencies changed. And so I think that was something that we... I think we're kind of getting at in the intro when we were talking about many of the the movements that we saw around us that were led largely by young people thinking specifically of the March for Our Lives um, campaign. And, you know, I think there's a lot of discourse now that, oh, well, the the kids will save us. Um, And maybe, but maybe they won't. And so I think that's something that um, kind of in historical perspective, this book you know, um, seeks to maybe trouble. And, and I really like that the way that you integrated the, the discussion of the youth movement now, um, around gun control, um, because they are experiencing so much of this, um, destructiveness in their schools. Um, as I have two high schoolers myself, Um, and, and so I, I really appreciated that, you know, you're bringing in yet again, another movement that has been spearheaded by young people. Um, but as you say, it's, it's not necessarily clear what the end result will be. I think one other aspect that I was really struck by is sort of the moral anchor that we assign to adulthood. And in fact, that lies oftentimes, uh, uh, with the youngest. Um, and it, I mean, more, most recently, as of this week, I think we've been contemplating about the role of youth, uh, especially with Donella Frazier's uh, uh, recording, I think, um, 
journalists have paid attention a little bit more about what that actually means and the way we think about young people's uh, role too. And I was struck at uh, one of the uh, journalists uh, talked about her the sort of the moral core that she exhibited in this moment. Um, and again, what we see when we look at young people and their role, because she she did help change something, um, potentially even the political discourses and the way um, Americans will proceed following the verdict of uh, Derek Chauvin with police reform, potentially uh, we, we could see this moment as a catalyst. Uh, and what I was struck by is uh, by her testimony where uh, she, she adds something very powerful in this process, not just that she delivered critical evidence, but she also humanized groups um, who have been victimized. Um, she reminded um, the defense and the prosecution that uh, George Floyd was a father. And I think young people's uh, voices are critical in humanizing <laughs> Um, people, uh, communities of color, uh, are critical in in maybe recentering um, uh, the moral core of the United States, and that goes back to something we brought up earlier about personal uh, personal responsibility. Um, and I just wanted to note that we are listening to one of our authors' dogs in the background as well. Um, so uh, that's that's just the way the cookie crumbles these days. Um, and I did want to ask the three of you, because this is a really interesting book and certainly one that took some effort to pull together. What is it that each of you separately or together are working on now in terms of your own research? Um, I'd be happy to, to start us off. Um, I am working on, on a book manuscript um, titled Shopping for Empire, um, American Tourists. Um, consumption and power after World War II. Um, and it's a book that looks at the experiences um, of American tourists um, abroad um, in the two decades following World War II. Um, and it looks at their experiences through the lens um, of shopping and consumption and souvenir hunting. I'm currently at uh works on a project uh, tentatively titled uh, Dying Young that looks at the significance of youth death in the course of the 20th century and uh, mourning practices and how those practices also shape um, policy decisions. It's an early stage of of the research, um, but I look at very for familiar cases uh, like Emma Till, but also unfamiliar uh, cases like Eric Moore's uh, youth uh, who um, died in Chicago. And so I'm, I'm trying to think about broader notions of, of youth in the context of policymaking, um, but also the role that youth death plays in that conversation. Much of my research up until this point has focused on youth activism, on those central actors, um, but I thought I wanted to shift uh, to the symbol, symbolic nature of youth, especially in the context of, of, of death. I, I would love to uh, have each of you separately or together. Um, if you do have another volume, oh, Paul, I think we have unmuted you. So please. Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So my next book project is going to focus on Ryan White, um, and the politics of childhood and AIDS and sexuality, uh, in the eighties. And I recently signed a, a 
an advanced contract with uh, UNC Press. So I'm very much looking forward to to uh, writing that. Now I have to actually do it. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, a really interesting story and uh, I hope to provide new perspective on it. Thank you. And I would love to talk to each of you separately about these when they are out. Um, and, and I know, as I said, I'm a political scientist, you're historians, but these are all incredibly topical um, and political um, issues. So I hope that you will join me back on the New Books in Political Science podcast to talk about your work. Um, today, I've been joined by Susan Eckelman Burgle, Sarah Fieldston, and Paul Renfro to talk about their really fascinating book, Growing Up America, Youth and Politics Since 1945, published by the University of Georgia Press in 2019. I assume one can buy this book at the University of Georgia Press website. Is there a favorite brick and mortar store that I, any of you have that has a great online presence where one can buy the book? I've I've started purchasing um, books by a book. Uh, um, what's it called? Bookshop. Bookshop. Um, yes. It also um, uh, generates revenue for um, independent bookstores. That's great. Paul? Yeah. Uh, Midtown Reader in Tallahassee is a good one. A nice local bookshop. All right. And thanks to the three of you for joining me today. Um, to talk about this really fascinating book. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Sure. Thanks so much. Thank you. 